Hey, it's David, and you're listening to the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I'm still waking up from all the tryptophan in the turkey, but it's good to be getting back to work. I've added four lessons onto the Tone Bass uh, lesson roster since the last podcast episode, uh, one of them being a really neat video on the art of composing with Steve Goss, great British composer. If you're interested in having access to these videos, use the promo code TONEBASE-PODCAST, all uppercase, for $15 off of a subscription. I've got the Peruvian guitarist Jorge Caballero for today's episode. Really phenomenal musician. He's the only guitarist to have won the Walter W. Nomberg Award, which is a huge feat. First time I heard him perform was when I was a sophomore in high school, so... About seven years ago, he performed uh, Mussorgsky's pictures at, at an exhibition, um, the Yamashita Arrangement. This is a truly uh, phenomenal classic piece of the orchestral repertoire, originally written by Mussorgsky for solo piano. Then later on, the Impressionist composer Ravel um, orchestrated this piece. And years down the road, uh, Yamashita, the Japanese guitarist, uh, made a crazy arrangement, somehow um, transcribing all the orchestral elements onto the solo guitar. And I think Jorge Caballero is probably one of the very few guitarists who's able to pull this off. So fast forward to last summer, um, I was at the Hamilton Guitar Festival, and Jorge played the Saturday headlining concert um, and I was able to meet with him the next day to record this interview. We talked about um, the program he had just performed, really um, beautiful recital of Box and Albanus's music. And you also hear his approach uh, to playing these arrangements of Yamashita. So let's go ahead and take a lesson uh, to the first movement of pictures at an exhibition following the promenade titled Nomis.
concert last night um, at the Hamilton Guitar Festival. Quite a program. Yep. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's kind of a half program for, for me. I am playing, I mentioned to you that I was playing in Mexico uh, next week. So, you know, I have this set of Albanese pieces from Iberia. Then I have that Bach partita, the second violin partita, the one that includes the Chacon. And then, um, you know what I'm what I'm playing these days. Besides that, is Korsakov's Capriccio Espanol. That's an arrangement that I made about five years ago, and a piece that I wrote, which took me about four years to write, actually. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that's basically what I'm kind of the tour these days. program right now. Yeah, more awesome. or less. I usually don't carry a single like tour program. You know, change it up a bit. Yeah, I constantly change it. I, you know, I get really bored with repertoire easily uh so if i've been playing something for too long i need to i need to move it move it out you have to keep because, it fresh yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, i totally agree with you it's so easy to burn out when you're playing the same yeah. pieces over and over again well you know i i gotta tell you i mean there's so many so many of uh, my colleagues actually do it i mean they year after year they just they play basically the same same program mm. or i think they have it seems to me that they have a formula where they have about the equivalent of two or three floating programs that they kind of mix and match so yeah. they can basically keep it keep them moving and you know and they've been doing that for a long time and i go and, and i think wow that's actually amazing that they can play the same stay sane the same stuff and <laughs> then right right exactly you know and 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 do it, it you know to that is that doesn't really work for me i just i i need to constantly change yeah so even if it's random changes i you know just a I little mean, change here and there even. Right, yeah. right. So the, the I mean, I loved the whole program last night, even mm -hmm. though it was a half program. The Albania mm -hmm. suite was a blast. And those were your arrangements, yes, if I'm correct. Yes, those were also my arrangements. And um, the um, BWV, what, what's the uh, number? 1004? Uh, 1004. 1004. Yeah. yeah. Just phenomenal. I, I, I think it was one of the most convincing performances I've heard of that suite on guitar. Oh, thanks. You know, I've, I've heard many guitarists play the Chaconne, and I think, yeah, that mm -hmm. works well. But this was the first time I heard the whole suite mm -hmm. um, with all the other movements where I really thought, wow, this really fits the instrument. And it was, was it your arrangement as well? Yeah. And actually, he, here's a... I think this is actually useful for for people to, to know. So I arranged all of the movements, you know, the uh, Alma and the Courant, the, uh, the Sarbant and the Jig. But the Chacon, I didn't. That's pretty much almost to almost to 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 the letter. That's Segovia's arrangement. Okay, you know, cool. and and by that I mean fingerings, including right hand fingerings, oh, really? including slurs. You know, there's I can count probably with one hand any change that I've made. You know, but pretty much everything else is Segovia's. Wow. You know, and so um, and so yeah, and and the reason actually. For me, in this part, in this particular case, was because you know, first of all, I wanted to play, I wanted to play the Chacon, but um, I started to study, restudy the Chacon. I, you know, I've played it in a number of different ways, the, but the very first version that I learned was Segovia's version, and I've always known that that version was good. You know, and so when I first started looking at it again, I was thinking, well, is there anything that I can do that I can where I can improve it, you know, or I can say make a different contribution to it. And, you know, in the process of doing that, I realized that there really wasn't anything else that I could add 
other than trying to bring it back to uh, to to a, to a surface level. Yeah, and and I still don't think I played it like Segovia played it, but I do feel like the way the way the arrangement is set up and the way he actually interpreted it. It's very detailed. In the, yeah. His 1959 version. There is so much, so much that we can learn as guitarists and as musicians from it. Uh, that I thought, yeah, I'm actually going to basically try to see if I can like bring this, bring this back, and yeah. see if I can do it. And of course, the rest of the arrangement was a way to, you know, follow the same along the same lines yeah. of the arrangement. So Segovia had thought about arranging all of the partita. How would he have done it? And so, I still don't feel like that's how he would would have done it. But uh, but at least I felt like it was a good way to bring all of the parts together. So yeah. anyway, it was it was. Uh, I especially enjoyed the thought. the first movement. You're adding quite a few kind of uh, counter melodies that are mm. not in the original. They just right. flowed right. beautifully. Kind of, yeah. Scovia did a couple of those for sure. Yeah, his yeah, yeah, arrangement. Yeah. yeah, sure. I I don't think he arranged any of that partita particularly. I mean, he did. Uh, the there's yeah. yeah, there's a partita for Riley number one where he arranged the the saraband, I think, and the the Bure you know but um you know for the second part it is just a chacon but uh you know the 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 spirit of the idea that 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 segovia took was basically more more based on busoni's idea of how to treat the chacon rather yeah. than like say brahms idea of as to how to treat the chacon you know for reference you know brahms basically is a rendition of the chacon with a uh, left hand piano and it's pretty neat, you know, if you, if, if you, um, for the listeners, if you haven't heard that, then you should actually just check it out. Just yeah. go and listen. It wasn't for it done Ron's like his wife broke her right hand. Was that, I, I think he wrote it either mm-hmm. for his wife or, or a friend of his who broke their yeah, right that, hand. Yeah. Or maybe that, it's just a rumor. Yeah. Well, it, that's, <laughs> you know, th- those things you can never verify, but actually if you, if you, if you trace the history of any piece written for a left-hand piano, that's usually the current, the, 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 the problem, you know, somebody, like uh, uh, Ravel's uh, left-hand piano concerto was basically the same thing. A guy, uh, a pianist, a friend of his, lost his arm in the in the war, his oh, right man. arm. So then, you know, so he wrote this piece for him. You know, so th- that's kind of a constant that they use this yeah, left-hand yeah. piano thing. You know, but um, but yeah, I mean, so you know, so there is that approach to the piece, and then there's Busoni's approach to the piece, where uh, Busoni is looking to make the piece something that in the view of the modern listener at the time would make sense of, a, you know, when looking back and referencing a piece of such gigantic proportions of the Chacon, how do you take the same approach for uh, on the piano in the early 1900s yeah. on, a, on a similar piece? So I think, you know, Segovia really Was took the same approach, yeah. you know, uh, basically, if you're looking at the Chacon and all of what it represents and you try to take it into an instrument like the guitar and around the 1930s 1933 i think so how do you how do you what do you how do you take it and so anything that he added was sort of a way to create this uh version this guitar version just like busoni created a true piano version of the piece you know so um so taking that into consideration i also thought well you know let's take the other movements and make something that 
is meaningful from a guitar perspective and rather than just copy the single lines and yeah you know and just make you know add a little bass here to add some re resonance or support i said you know we can do better than that i thought yeah. so so that's what i what i thought there's definitely kind of the different schools or ways of approaching Bach, and you know i know some people who swear by reading off the violin score and it works it's mm -hmm. okay but you know i think Bach, you know if he mm -hmm was to arrange it for guitar himself. You know, if that instrument was around back then, mm -hmm. he would totally be adding all these extra voices and absolutely, everything. Absolutely, yeah. And we actually don't even have to really speculate on that fact. I mean, we can, we can take into reference uh, any any situation of conversion that he had, you know, like say, of course, we it's easy to reference the ideas of like the third lute suite to the fifth cello suite, for mm -hmm. example. You know, that's yeah. obvious, and you see how he um, Bach adds notes. Uh, yeah, you know, takes some notes out for the cello. Same with the four the the fourth lute suite and the third violin partita. You know, he you know just from the very opening of the prelude, he adds a, he adds a bass for support. You know, and then he finishes with a low with a low note bass. I mean, there are all these reasons. Be, there are reasons behind behind these things, but you can also take the same approach between, like, say, the the, the fugue from the first violin sonata to his prelude and fugue in in organ. That the fugue being based on that that very same fugue from the violin sonata. I think this is five three nine in the catalog. I do, mm -hmm. but I'm not clear on the numbers. There's quite a few. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you look at the the uh, the organ version of that same fugue with the same subject, mm -hmm. you know, and you look at all of the uh, all of the added elements to it. And you, you know, and basically you understand that Bach is really not looking at his material at the material as written for the violin as absolute. Yeah. He's looking at it as a point as a point of reference upon which things can be built depending on the nature of the instrument that yeah. he's working with. And so, I mean it was amazing what he did. Um for these amazing fugues and oh, yeah. complex to be played on an instrument like the violin or right. or the cello, you know, and it, it, it's really amazing the capa capabilities he found through these instruments. But it, it's mm -hmm. so refreshing to also see him be open to just yeah. totally changing things yeah. up. And yeah, the other interesting thing that also gets overlooked, even when you um, uh, when you see how there are all these changes, you also notice how the changes that uh, are brought into a piece, you know by virtue of the instrument uh, that is playing them, uh, also changes the nature of how the piece itself works. Uh, you know, it's uh, what, what I like to call this expressive arc. You know, if you look at sort of how, how on an organ you're basically building a piece, uh, or like this, this violin fugue that we're talking about, um, it basically builds itself through textures and textures, and the, but the ebb and flow constantly has this flowing undulating arc. That's basically going from episode to episode. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you look at, say, the, at the the violin version, there's a constant drive upward. So the yeah. arcs are not like uh, just following a single plane, but the um, the arc is actually following a slanted plane. That eventually, when you get to the end of the fugue, it's very um, it's rather apotheosic. You go you know, big and big and yeah. big. And when you reach the end, you have that boom. It's yeah. Basically, it's just, a, it's finally the fall of, of, you know, the fall from the top. The climax. You know, so, um, you know, but on the organ, you don't have that property, you know, so Bach is perfectly content of writing material that creates these different ways of flowing. But uh, this issue of like getting to a big point, uh, I think he somehow sees that that's not, 
even though the organ would be capable of producing gigantic amounts of sound, he's not really thinking that that's the best way to go yeah. about it. He just treats the organ with a certain neutrality, even though there's more material in, in, yeah. in the notes themselves. So, um, you know, these, these things to me are always very, very interesting yeah. because they lead you to think about how uh, musical ideas are not absolute, you know, and, you know, only only um, superficial hearing or understanding of music uh, makes you think that the notes as written are the uh, are dogmatic and they have to take an absolute value. But if you look at them from a more flexible perspective, the way Bach himself looked at them, there's different ways to create degrees of expression with, with them. So, um, so taking all of that into account, you you can look at a uh, at a piece written for violin by Bach, and then you can say, well, I'm playing it on a guitar. I have amplitude for this. I, yeah. I I don't have to play only the notes that are there, because I don't exactly believe that the note the values expressed in these notes are actually absolute in terms of musical yeah. idea. There's more to them, you know. So um so anyway that yeah so that's how I I kind of approach approach the music. approach yeah. the parts, and you know there are little things that happen as a result. You know how certain things have to be articulated in certain ways, you know, that on the violin, they're not necessary, you know. Um, but anyway, all of these things all, you know, basically are conclusions that you can easily find if you take a moment and study Segovia's version of the Chacon, where, you know, even in the uh, well-known scale sections, you know, um, unlike the way um, the violin articulates this, where there's one section where it's all basically a full bow, and then suddenly you articulate every note. Yeah. Each, each bow stroke is different, you know. And the guitar Segovia doesn't do that. He is always constantly working with different uh, degrees of uh, slurs and such, you know. And it actually all creates a, a really good effect on the guitar, you know, without having to copy the violin. Yeah. You know? So and my my biggest pet peeve <clears throat> with that piece is. Uh, the opening chords when people try to impersonate a violin the way they play double stops. Oh, right. And it's like, look, <clears throat> we have the capability of not being limited to having uh -huh. to play only two notes at a time. It right. just drives me crazy, you know? Right. <laughs> but yeah. I, I sometimes think, I think Bach would probably love hearing this suite on the guitar. Oh, I think he would be totally for it. And, you know, hearing all these examples, you know, talk mm -hmm. about... Um, how he adapted on organ versus uh, mm -hmm. violin and cello and right. uh, lute. Yeah, like, he was such a masterful mm -hmm. composer and mm -hmm. so open and knew right. how instruments worked. Mm -hmm. I think that's what really separates certain composers from each other. Oh, sure. And here's a, you know, when, when you work with students and things like that, and, you know, there's issues of imitation, you know, uh, so you don't want to imitate an instrument. You want to imitate the essence of the idea, you know, and so... If you look at it from a simple perspective, say the opening chords of the Chacon. So first of all, that Chacon is basically structured in, in the form of, in the dance form of a saraband, yeah. where the stress is on the second beat. And so, and the way it falls is one, two, and three, and one, right? So, um, so for that, you know, Bach begins with this chord, a three note chord on the violin. And of course, knowing full well that that chord cannot be played as a block. So, Beat one and then brum, dum brum, brum, you know. So yeah. he's actually looking for a way to create this. Um, what's the word? Gestalt, I guess, of uh, of uh, you know of sound that's kind of bringing this up. Now the violin has some issues with that, but the guitar doesn't. You could just play and create these accents naturally. Yeah, you know? and so 
you know, I don't think his intention was to actually just roll every chord. Yeah. You know, it's just the, the violin can only do it that way. You know? There's so, limitations to both yeah. instruments. And it's, yeah. uh, it, it's <clears throat> always really interesting yeah. hearing back-to-back, -back, well, maybe not in the same concert, but back-to-back mm -hmm. -back performances, you know, if you're in a violin versus guitar, there's certain mm -hmm. sections that I think are fantastic on guitar and then certain sections that definitely work better for the violin. But it, sure. But they both, with the right player, if they've got the chops, it, it, right. it's right. a masterful work. It's one of the yeah. greats. Yeah. Segovia himself, I remember in a master class, he said that... Uh, when when approaching the uh, the chacon and the guitar, you know the expressive the expressive quality that the chacon brings on the violin is gigantic. With the guitar, it's subtle, but it must be there. Yeah, you know, and so that that's a very you know it's such a simple statement, but it's very profound if you are actually if you're ever in the position where you're looking to play the Chacon in a performance and looking to make the best of it, yeah. you know, as a guitarist, you know, how do you bring the subtleties? You know? It's definitely, uh, it's a bit of a nerve wracking one because everyone knows it. <laughs> that is also true. Yeah. Of course, I like playing not pieces that aren't known well, cause then no one knows <laughs> if I'm playing well or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it, it is kind of scary, you know, the first times you do it, but once you, you've done it a few times then that, you that kind of get in the flow that goes things. away, you know, it's, you know, it's no different than playing a difficult piece. Yeah. You know? All of these things are incidentally just, you know, things that you, um, that you put in your own, in your own brain as personal burdens, but ultimately they have no, no bearing so much on, on listeners. Yeah. You know, um, so the Chacon is a very well-known piece, but I'm, I would often wonder, you know, not a guitar audience in the middle of a festival, because it's likely that someone has already play, been playing or practicing the Chacon somewhere in the back room. So you've heard it, but if you take into consideration our general audience, so they're going to go and hear the Chacon, uh, which is a piece that they've heard before, but the question would be, when was the last time they heard it? Yeah, and probably not, not that not recently. Yeah, you know. So, and also take into account that you know, even if you're a musician, you know, you are familiar with the Chacon, but how well do you actually know it unless you've actually studied it? Yeah, and even then, when was the last time you studied it, and when was the last time you you played it? You know, so you know, so these issues of oh, this piece is well known and everybody knows it. People don't know it to the note, and even if they know it to the note, they don't know it from an interpretive perspective. So what surprised me last night is you weren't playing an orchestral piece for the first <laughs> time I've seen you. Uh, that's <laughs> You're quite that's well true. known for, well, I mean, it was a piano work originally, but right, the Mazorsky right. pictures and sure. an exhibition. Yeah. Yeah. And well, no, no confusion about it, though. I mean, the, uh, the, that version of pictures that I'm playing is actually more orchestral, orchestrally minded yeah. than piano minded, for sure. Yeah. It, I'm not... I'm not trying to like replicate a piano. I'm trying to see if we can capture the essence of the orchestral version. Yeah. Yeah. So your master version is... It's pretty gnarly. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. And, you know, and in it actually lies sort of this essence of arrangement that, I'm, that I was talking about. How uh, he... The arrangement is so difficult, but if you if you go beyond, once again, go beyond this the surface of how difficult it is and actually look at what his intention is and you know from these issues of color and even fingering choices and you know and you realize how what a remarkable arrangement it is you know yeah. uh you know of course the only problem is that it's really difficult yeah you know but uh but it's great you know so yeah but in any case like i said you know i started playing that 
um, when I was a kid. You know, my when I was about 12 years old, my teacher basically said, oh, you know, you've known some guitar for now. This is what's possible on the guitar. <laughs> so he he played me that. So you saw that score for the first time when you were yeah. 12. Yeah. And, wow. uh, you know, first of all, I first I heard it and I thought, whoa, how is that possible? See, you know, I when, when I was a kid, you know, playing the guitar, you know, I would listen to records or tapes and CDs at the time. And every time I heard a piece, I would be like, how does that play? And I would try to imagine how it was played. And I could always imagine how it, it, it was played until I heard this. Yeah. And I went, how is that possible? Like, I just don't understand. You know, my, my, my 12 year old mind could not comprehend it. And I don't think know. my 21 year old mind can comprehend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it definitely defies imagination. Like you, you know, you, there's no way to imagine something like that. So of course, uh, I, I, I'm always, if, if I, if there's something that I see that I do not understand, I just always, my, my most immediate response is I need to know what this is. I yeah. need to under, I need to understand this. I mean, that's my personality. So God, my, uh, you know, my, my teacher then showed me the music and I, oh, so, okay. So this is how in theory this is done, but I still don't know how it can be, can be done. I mean, it's, it was so difficult, you know, so I spent time here and there just looking at it and trying to make sense of the mechanical problems involved in doing these things that I saw. And, you know, well, that was something that took years. I mean, by the time I was 14, maybe I could sort of play it, okay. you know, but badly, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know. Still quite a yeah feat at that age to. Mm, yeah, well, it, de it depends on how you look at it. I mean, like I, I personally would say that you know, I remember playing it a bit and I think, you know, some people were thinking, wow, that's impressive. But what I was really thinking is that this is terrible. Like I, I, I can't play this, you know? And so Need a bit more time. Yeah. And so, but I felt like it was good for me to know this because it added dim dimensions to, yeah. to me and dimensions of knowledge or, you know, basically just getting a, getting an ability to getting the, 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 the good fortune to see the top of the mountain before, before you're even midway up the mountain, you know? So, so I thought, oh, it's a good thing that I saw this, but I still don't know how to get up there, you know? So um, <laughs> one day, <laughs> yeah, but it did give me that hope. I think, yeah, yeah, I think one day I can, I can work this out. So I continue be trying to be a good guitarist and continue improving and, you know, and eventually by the time I was uh, around 19, I could actually play it. Yeah. But I didn't really perform it. I was just more of a, what I call a study piece is okay. a, a kind of a piece that I have a lot of pieces in my repertoire that I've never performed, but there are study pieces. I, I always go, oh, this is a piece that I've learned for X reason and X reason, you know, like, yeah. and, you know, and maybe someday what happens is someday those pieces become actually performance pieces for me, you know, so this was always a study piece until, you know, I gave it a try in 2007 and then just just to see how it worked it worked okay but not great or you know and then in 2011 thomas kirchhoff asked me if i would play it at in Iserlund, and i said okay yeah let's do it <laughs> <laughs> and so now i had to really think about it yeah like serious got a real crowd and, yeah so <laughs> so yeah that's when i really started to play it you know? and it's uh it's just such an exciting piece to see at a guitar concert. I mean, it's beautiful writing the, the mm -hmm. arrangement as you're talking about. It's yeah. very yeah. smartly done. And it's yeah. uh, 
it's just a blast. I love it. Sure. Everyone I've talked to loves it. It's uh sure. It's 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 great. Yeah. You know? I mean it great response and you know the piece has already inherently has a natural flow. Absolutely. Movement after movement, you know, and just gotta make sure uh, your strings are settled in before you start. Yeah, you actually have to <laughs> kind of memorize the uh it's it's are part, there a couple it's part of playing. changes. Yeah, yeah, you have to, you start on D, then you have to uh, retune retune the fifth string to G, then eventually that's going to back up, and then eventually the sixth string goes back up, and then then the sixth string comes back down to D, and then the second half of the of the piece you stay on that tuning. Wow. Yeah. So there's a few things that you need to know. You need to know. When is the right time to 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 make the tuning adjustment, and then also when you're going to have times to tune while you're playing? Yeah, that's also that's also something that you need to know, and uh, you also need to know how to create tunings more efficiently, more quickly. That sort of, that sort of thing. Yeah, you know. So um, yeah, to tune up, for example, to E. Um, I there's a pause right before I have to. I should tune before the end of the movement. Where it's, which is when I make the tuning because mm -hmm. that's a good time to do it. And at the same time, I have a good reference point. You know, you have to play a harmonic, G-sharp harmonic. And so I tune up and then I play the harmonic. And if I hear the harmonic being out of tune in reference to the next harmonic, then I know that my E tuning is off. Okay, you know, but, yeah. Uh, so Just using the I natural resonances of the guitar. Yeah. yeah, so little things like that, yeah. you know, that's kind little of tricks. insider knowledge. But it know? doesn't have like a burial sequences section that's actually... Made to tune. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't get a. You don't get a chance to do that. Oh, no, it's it, too it's, bad. No, no. You have to actually try to make the. You got to make it work as inconspicuous as possible. Wow. You know. So yeah, but yeah, it's such a great piece, and I. But I. I don't know. I. I don't. I, when was the last time I performed it? Maybe last year. Something okay. Like that. Yeah, and once again, for the same reason, I'm trying to move away from pieces that I've been playing recently. Or so, keep it fresh, yeah. Yeah, so something that I've been playing now is the Korsakov Capriccio Español, mm -hmm. which is, uh, of course, that's my arrangement, it's not Yamasha's arrangement, but uh, but it's such a great piece and so operatic in nature, very dramatic, so it has a very nice arc and flow to it, and so... Yeah, awesome. so it's it's fun. Well, I'm looking forward know. to hearing it at some point. Yeah, you know, some maybe next time if I if I get a full program, I'll play it. You know? Sounds good. Hopefully, if if it's soon enough, because otherwise it'll be out it'll of. It'll be my a new piece. Yeah, which hopefully should be something. Be fun a Beethoven well. symphony or Mahler. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't do a whole Mahler symphony. That, that no, would be no, a bit no. much. <laughs> no, that's that that's unfair. <laughs> unfair Even to with the full orchestra is just too long. I mean, it's <laughs> it's amazing repertoire, but it's so right. It's draining to sit through a whole, especially, True. I mean, the second symphony is just amazing, but I remember sure. I saw one time uh, mm -hmm. a great orchestra playing and right. they, they didn't even, I, I think we actually had a little intermission in right. between some of the movements because <laughs> it's just such a monster right, work. Right, it's right, crazy. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, with Mahler, Mahler, you have to go and see, see it performed. You know, this is also good advice for the listeners. You know, don't, uh, if you, if all the, your Mahler experiences from listening to recordings, you no matter how good your no matter how good your sound equipment is, basically it's it's like looking um, it's like looking at a picture of the Grand Canyon and believing that you've actually seen it. <laughs> you know, it's really not at all like what it is if you actually go see it live. You know, uh, seeing a Mahler uh, performance, even with an with an 
with an amateur orchestra, an amateurish orchestra, not a good orchestra, will be much better than hearing yeah. the best orchestras in recording. You know, so absolutely, yeah. And so uh, I guess that actually leads me to uh, a good point. You know, don't forget to go to concerts. You know, that's support uh, our artists. Yeah, but uh, yeah, there's nothing like. The excitement of a live performance absolutely you can't capture it in the absolutely recording. plus you that way you can actually really see the uh, the true artistry of a player you know um recordings are you know like snapshots you yeah. know basically like this picture of the grand canyon that i'm making reference of no matter how good the quality is there's still a great element missing a great element of depth and there is such a thing as sound depth that um we can only hear when there's a depth to be perceived you know, microphones can't do that. Yeah. So, so don't forget to go to concerts. Gotta use your ears. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you, Jorge, for being on the show. Please join me in two weeks for a conversation with the early music specialist, Richard Savino. I'll leave you today with another excerpt of Mussorgsky's pictures and an exhibition. This is the fifth movement titled The Ballet of the Little Chickens. I'm David Steinhardt. And we'll see you next time for the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. <laughs>